Good morning, beloved. God bless you. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you to sit at your throne because we have the right as your children in Christ to approach you with boldness and with gladness and with joy. And Father, I pray right now for this congregation that as we continue to search for the pastor you would have for us, that you would establish a hedge of protection around us and that you would protect us from the evil one. In the name of Jesus, I cast him out of this place and of this congregation. And that you, as our healer, would restore us to health in our minds and in our bodies and on our soul. So that we can walk with you in humbleness and in peace and in joy and in confidence. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable. And may my brothers and sisters here with me now be praying for me that I would step out of your way so that they may hear your voice and see your face and feel your presence. For it's in Jesus' precious, precious name we pray. Amen and amen. So, for those of you who were here last week, thanks for coming back. Um, Appreciate that's always an encouragement. And so we're here today in part two of a four-part series to talk about living the calm, confident, and compassionate life. And last week I talked for those who weren't here, by the way, we have a couple visitors, I'm Bill Smith, I'm just one of several members of the teaching team here, and I'm doing this series on finding a balance among these three things in our life, to live a life of peace or calmness, but also to live life in confidence and also to live with compassion. And I talked last week about if those three get out of balance, they impact the other two. If we spend too much or too little of our focus or orientation towards one, it'll have some kind of an impact or effect on the other two. So, for for example, today we're going to focus on confidence. And the point I want to make about confidence is that if we have too much of it becoming arrogant or possess too little of it in becoming uh, timid, it can cause us to become or lacking compassion towards others, or become too oriented towards looking for our peace or sense of salvation in our external circumstances. So today and the next two Sundays, we're going to now talk about, we're talking about a balance between these three, but with each one of those, there's sort of another kind kind of a trinity in a sense. If we aren't calm, we become worried about things unnecessarily. If we're too calm, we become apathetic about things. Down here in Compassionate, I'll talk on the last Sunday about lacking compassion makes us indifferent to the needs of others. And having too much compassion, although you hear me say, I don't know if that's actually possible, but there is a way that we can become too compassionate where we become codependent on others. But those three all need to be in balance among each other and within each other. Because as Mr. Miyagi told us, (laughs) lesson for whole life, whole life have balance, everything be better. Okay, so I think there's a little wisdom there. Being a karate guy, I have to put Mr. Miyagi up there. So, so today we're going to focus on this idea of confidence. And when we lack it, we're going to be seeing timidity, among other words we'll take a look at. Too much of it would be arrogance or pride or self-conceit. So we're going to unpack that. So today's goal is to understand what Scripture really means by confidence and to begin to apply God's word related to the power and reassurance that we already have in Christ. So there are basically four words in Scripture that we see that I will pronounce incorrectly, I'm sure, 
uh, that are generally translated as confidence. And it's not always consistent among which version you're taking a look at. So we have words like pepiothesis, which talks about persuasion or assurance. This I have hypostasis, like a foundation. That's something that I have confident in that will hold me up. Parhesia, boldness, and terio, which is the verb form of being courageous. And as one of my professors said, the beginning of all inquiry starts with the definitions of its terms. And given he had five PhDs, anything he said I wrote down. Didn't understand much of it, but I wrote it down. Okay, So we're going to look into this word confidence, so let's unpack that in terms of a scriptural understanding of that word. So uh, we look in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, which by the way, uh, 2 Corinthians has a, has the, seems to have the most translations of this word confidence in this particular book. And in the third chapter we read, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In Ephesians, we read, In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence, which is why I included that in my prayer a few moments ago. Hypostasis has this idea of being set under or a foundation or leading one to stand upon. It's the word that's used in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And I often use this to talk, when we talk about faith, and in our men's study on Tuesday night, we were talking about evidence. And of course, we have a lawyer there who was talking us about the different forms of evidence and what's admissible and so on. And that, ironically, nothing is ever proven. It's just the, what did you call it, the preponderance of evidence says, probably is guilty, but might not be, right? So, here this idea of faith would be, and I use this analogy that if I were to be talking to you guys, which I happen to be right now, and we're talking about this subject, I would, I would accuse you uh, of having a tremendous chair faith. As I watched you come in here and you just sat down right on those chairs, as if you knew they would hold you up. What tremendous faith you seem to have. I can't believe people of great faith. And of course, at some point you would say, I don't know if I had faith, I just... I just know these chairs well. I know about construction. I know about materials. Plus, I've sat on the chairs before, and they held me up then. They would hold me up now. So using that analogy here of this particular word for confidence, God is a sure foundation that we can stand on. So it's not that you need to have a bunch of faith. You just need to have a lot of knowledge of that in which you place your faith. The more you know about what you are placing your faith in, the easier it will be for you to rest upon it. And everybody will look at you and go, wow, you have such tremendous faith. And you'll say, no, little faith, I know a lot about God. The more I get to know him, the more I learn I can trust him. Hypostasis. I have that confidence in him. This other word, parhesia, boldness, in 1 John 2.28, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed. I'm going to bring this word shame back here in a little bit. Before him at his coming. In Acts 28, it talks about Paul's retirement. And for two whole years, he stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed them all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And then this final word of confidence related to courageousness. And we read in 2 Corinthians again, 
By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. Just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad we have complete confidence in you. So we're taking a look at this word, confidence. And the kind of confidence that we're talking about today is a confidence that results from trusting in the Lord, not in ourselves. It's a confidence that comes from understanding God is the only true foundation, the firm foundation which we stand upon. By placing our hope in him, our confidence grows. Knowing who we are in him, it relates to our confidence. That he is fully competent and abides in us. And so therefore, you've ever heard the phrase guilt by association? Well, in this case, we can have confidence by association with God. And so, let's take a look at this idea of God-confident versus self-confident. So we can go to Jeremiah, and we see in the ninth chapter, the 23rd verse, the Lord says this, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or of the rich to boast of their riches. Now notice it doesn't say to don't be wise, or don't be strong, or don't be rich. There's nothing wrong with being wise, <laughs> Or strong or rich. The problem comes when we begin to boast about that. And then we see how the Lord feels about that kind of boasting. It's their wisdom, their strength, their riches. But let the one who boasts, if you want to boast, then boast about this that you have the understanding to know me and that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So when we move out of this sense of confidence in God into a confidence in ourselves, we end up with something called pride. And the Bible is rather clear about how God feels about this idea of pride. Proverbs 16.5 says the Lord detests. It's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Detest all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. And, of course, the one we're probably all familiar with is pride goes before a fall. Okay, so it's a setup. Once pride sets in, it's just just a matter of time that something's going to go wrong. So in preparing for uh, the apologetic study, I began to do different research, knowing these these young men that we have in here, uh, it just seems like to me the young men in this church are extremely sharp people. So I actually preparing for that as well. And um, I read through C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, again. And by read through it, I meant I listened to it on, my, on the way back and forth to work. Then I had to go and get a copy because, wow, I stumbled upon the ninth, the ninth uh, chapter, and he begins to talk about pride in a way that I never really thought about it before. In fact, I wish I hadn't read this because it was convicting for me. And so... C.S. Lewis talks about pride in a very profound way, and he says, and this mere Christianity is a series of talks he gave. So I want to read what he said, but I summarize it up here. He says, today I come to that part of Christian morals. He's been talking about different vices or sins that Christianity talks about and deals with. I come to that part of Christian morals which differ most sharply 
from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except maybe Christians, ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard any of these same people accuse themselves of this vice to which I am now referring. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who showed the slightest mercy or tolerance to it in others. There is no fault which makes a person more unpopular and no fault of which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have of it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice... um, talking of now is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite of it in Christian morals is humility. So I'm preparing for apologetics, and I'm like, i got to put this in a sermon. This is way better than something I could think of. I'm just hard to admit C.S. Lewis is a little sharper than I am, but there's my, there's my pride, right? So I just want to highlight there is no fault that makes a person more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of we all have it to some extent and and the more we have in ourselves the more we dislike it in others and then he goes on to say something that really got my attention he'd been talking about all these other vices and he says according to christian teachers the essential vice the utmost evil is pride unchastity anger greed drunkenness and all that are mere flea bites in comparison like, what? Because most of the time in the church, we're talking about all those things like they're like the worst thing, and we never talk about pride. At least I haven't. So I'm guilty of this, right? This is the worst. And here's why. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Not any other vice, just that one. Pride leads to every other vice. We've heard of the marijuana as the gateway drug. Pride is the gateway sin. And to everything else, it is the complete anti-God state of mind. And he makes an interesting point I hadn't thought of. He said, pride is essentially competitive. Pride never delights in just having something. Pride delights in what? Having more of it than everybody else. And that's why we tend to get a little irritated by people who say, I'm rich, I'm really, really rich. One of the candidates for president said that recently. I don't know which one it was. I think it was Bernie Sanders probably said that, right? <laughs> to have more of, to be in competition with. And, and as the scripture says, it can even be, I'm wise, I'm wiser than everybody else. Well, good for you. However, you're just committing a sin of saying that I'm better than, I have more than. And so we're never satisfied enough. And so having wealth, nothing wrong with that. It's when I have to have more of it than somebody else becomes the problem for us. So is pride always sinful? And the answer is no. Paul even talked about boasting. He had pride in people. So sometimes I've sort of checked myself on that. I'm going to say, I'm really proud of my children. Right? What, I'm, what we're really saying there is, I really admire them. And, and being proud of doing something good for other people. The scripture doesn't really condemn that. In fact, it encourages you to do things for other people. And then you might receive some praise, which is perfectly natural. 
If you're doing it in the Lord, the praise becomes kind of embarrassing, doesn't it? Because it wasn't really me. But I received the praise, and it's okay to enjoy that as well. It's when the praise loses its effect, then pride kicks in. What do you notice about the people who become celebrities? Initially, they get all the praise. They're getting the praise. But what do you notice after a while? They don't really care about it anymore. And that helps you understand why, what do we see them in the news always ending up with? All kinds of problems with drugs and divorce and all these kind of things because it wasn't enough. I have to have more. So the question becomes, well, do I have any pride? Now, this part of the sermon apparently is really more for me. It might be for some of you. But this sort of a checklist of how do I know if I have any pride? Where is it at? Because we're mostly unconscious of it, right? So here are some things to be thinking about. To what extent are you bothered? Remember, the more of it we have in ourselves, the more we're bothered by other people by it. When people snub you, are you all put by that, or is it just a no, no big deal? Or they put their two cents in after you've already made that point. Or they refuse to notice you or to acknowledge you. I have a client like that right now I'm coaching, struggling with that. I'm not being noticed or acknowledged, not getting the credit. Or they patronize, or they're showing off, or they contradict or disagree with you, or they take credit for your work. To what extent is that bothering you? There might be some pride there. And I'm not saying that on any of this that we're always prideful. There's just these moments where we might have some degree of pride. Or at least I know I do. And the Lord is showing me these things, and I didn't even ask him to. But he shows me. And it, it's, it's, it's a struggle. It, it's really, wow, man. I, I thought I had it figured out. And he says, then there's your pride right there. <laughs> you think you have me figured out, and you think you have you figured out, and you have the gall to get up in front of my children and tell them about it. It's the kind of stuff he tells me. I don't like to hear about, right? That's why I ask you to pray for me. So that's too much confidence, overconfident in self. We can also be on the other end of the situation and be lacking confidence. There's that lion who's now shy, right? And so we could also use the word timid, among other words. And so when we have this as a part of our lives, and again, maybe not all the time, but from time to time, when there's lacking confidence in God, therefore I don't feel confident, we end up with feeling fearful. Or we can be hesitant to do certain things because I'm not so sure whether I should do this or not, whether God is in it or not. And we become apprehensive about little things. Or we start to ask lots of questions about different things and so on. We become anxious. None of this, by the way, is pleasing to God. In fact, remember last week we talked about Jesus calming the storm? And then after the storm, when they said, don't you care about us? They're accusing God of apathy. And what did Jesus say? He didn't say, well done, my good servants, for being so fearful and timid. He actually <laughs> accused them and judged them. Why are you so afraid? What is, you still don't know who I am and who you're with. Well, he's not pleased by that. We'll talk a little bit later about this idea of, of this false humility. So, fear can serve a positive purpose. In Proverbs 1.7, most people are familiar with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Some years ago, a brother came up to me, and in sincerity, he said, you know, you know, we talk about God as love, and all oh, that's wonderful, but what about that verse, the beginning of 
Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. What about that? And I smiled and I said, yeah, it is the beginning of the fear of the Lord. It's not the end. It's the starting point. And where I learned this, of all places where God will speak to you, you know, familiar with Monty Roberts, The Horse Whisper? He's, they made a movie. It was played by Robert Redford. And I've read his books. I'm not even a horse person, but somehow I got interested in this. I got his DVD because he does amazing things. His father used to break horses. They would, they would tie them up until the horse would eventually submit, and he just felt this was wrong, and he began to study horses in the wild. And um, what he found was when a predator came, they would immediately start running, but they would never run in a straight line. And the, the reason for that, twofold, he thinks, is that they, they could be being set up for an ambush. So by running in a straight line, I might run into more trouble. So what they start doing is they start running in an arc. And eventually, of course, because they can, if they get the head start, the predator can't catch up to them and they tire out. They can go fast, but for a short distance, horses can go fast, but continue. What they eventually do is they make a full circle so they can come back around. And, of course, when the predator finally tires out and lays down, the horses come and they stare at the predator. And not kind of a nanny-nanny-boo-boo, but more of a, what was that that was chasing us? And they begin to study and pay attention to see what that threat was. And so what he did is he created a round pen. Prior to that, they were always rectangular, easy to build. And he has a big round pen, and he's many, many times done this. In fact, the Queen of England, who is probably one of our top horse people in the, in the world, by the way, uh, brought him on to, to work with her people. He brings a horse into the pen. He's in the center of it, and he has this short little white rope, and he flicks it at the horse, never touches the horse, but just from behind the horse, and the horse starts to run, but it can only keep running in a circle. But in its mind, out in the wild, I'm running from in an arc. And he even says when he demonstrates, he flicks this and he does this with his hand. And guess what that represents to a horse? Teeth. That's a threat. And he says out loud so that people can hear him, go away from me. Go away from me. Go far away from me. And then he gets, flicks the other way and the horse turns around. Go away from me. Go far away from me. Go far away. And the horse keeps running. And what he's watching for at some point when the horse is running at some point, the horse will take the... You know, they can direct their ears independently. They'll take the one ear and show that it's paying attention to him, and listening to him. That's the horse saying, I'm going to begin to listen to you instead of ears forward. Then at some point, it'll slow down and it'll drop its head and it'll start chewing. And it's, he thinks it's saying, I'm not a threat to you. I eat grass. Okay? And when the horse does that, and I'm going to try to talk about this without crying. When the horse does that at that point, so here's the horse, and it's slowing down, bows its head, starts to chew. What he does is he puts the rope down and his hand down, and he goes like this. And he shows the horse his side. And what he learned about horses, when a horse shows its side, it's saying, I'm not a threat to you. It's the way the alpha female disciplines the herd. Usually it's younger male horses she has to discipline, by the way. And the way she disciplines them is she cuts them out of the herd and chases them away so they have to stand over there where they're vulnerable away from the herd. And then she stands there and looks at them. And, of course, they want to come back, and she keeps looking. And as long as she's looking at me, I can't come back in. And I become anxious. And then when she feels the punishment's over, she turns her side, and the horse comes back up to the herd. So as soon as he turns his side, he tells what's going to happen next is... The horse walks over and puts its muzzle 
on his shoulder. And that's called join up. And the horse is saying, I don't know what to do. I'm scared. I don't know where I'm. So I'm going to trust you to lead me to where I need to be. I never thought in a million years that I would be reading a book called The Horse Whisperer and suddenly have a wet face (laughs) because he's saying, go away from me. I'm a threat. Fear me, fear me, fear me. Once you bow your head to me, I turn my side to you and you pierce it and then you join up to me and I will lead you to where you should be going. That's join up. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But the end of wisdom is the knowledge of the loving kindness of our God. But it starts with fear. Go away from me. And you know what? I did go away from the Lord for a while. I don't know how many of you did. But of course, that's what college will do for us. Is they'll tell us there's no God. And I went away and I went far away. And then he finally helped me understand. I need to bow my head because I don't know what I'm doing out here. So, fear of anything other than God is not a good thing. So in Isaiah we read, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way to those with fearful hearts. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And again, in Isaiah 41, we read, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Well, what's at the right hand of God? I should say who? Jesus is at the right hand of God. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you won't find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord God the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. He's not interested in this timidity. Those aren't his children. And then it came to me that both this pride and this fear, although in a sense opposite, you know, they are opposite, but they also have something in common. So when we're taking a look at fear and anxiety, it's a way of saying this is beyond me, And therefore, it's beyond God, and that produces this sense of God can't help. He's lacking. Pride is saying, I can do this on my own. I don't really need God. He is lacking. So both fear and pride are judgments on God. He's not interested in that. Sometimes fear can result, by the way, from one's own sin. If you have sin in your life that has yet to be confessed to God, and you still hold on to that, and you haven't given that to him, it's going to produce a sense of fear in you, partly for maybe being found out or something like that. That's one possible source of why there's fear in your life. Another one, then that will produce shame. So timidity or shame, the opposite, think about that for a second, opposite of pride is not humility, it's ultimately shame. Sometimes fear can be something that you actually learned, and probably learned it in your home. And just like pride, you might not even know that you have these fears in your life for no reason other than all that you saw fearful people around you. And those will be parts of your life that you don't even know you have these fears. And I had that experience in my own family, having people in my family who were very fearful. And every time something went on, I was, oh, 
you know, and after, yeah, yeah, what the, you know, what's going on? A fly got in the house. <sighs> okay, okay, <laughs> wow, you know, nuclear bomb, a fly, <laughs> you know, and you start to learn these things, you know, you say, get rid of this stuff, it's not part of, of who I am. Or it could be worse than that, maybe somebody actually hurt you whom you trusted, and you now have a fear you don't even know about. So, as I said, uh, the opposite of pride, or C.S. Lewis said, the opposite of pride is humility, but the ultimate opposite of pride is actually shame. So how do we gain this confidence? Confidence can look like humility. Or I would say those who are truly confident in the Lord find it easy to possess humility. So, let's take a look at humility in a little more detail here. There's false humility, which we're familiar with. False humility is really self-defeating mindset, poor self-image. I'm a failure, I'm worthless, I'm unlikable. Or I become a people pleaser, insecure, timid, overly dependent on what other people think. True humility would be more self-forgetful, selfless, not fearful what others think, only of what God thinks. Healthy self-awareness of strengths and weaknesses. Pride is self-conceit, exalted view of self, getting ahead of others, domineering, overbearing, unteachable, resisting feedback. I don't like to get feedback from people because I'm perfect. So, you know, so always when, when people give me feedback, and unfortunately, like on a weekly basis, because of my job, I tend to get this. I have this little thing someone else taught me. I'm saying in my mind, Remember, Bill, the highest intent behind feedback is to help you. The highest intent is to help you. They're trying to help you. They're trying to help you. They're trying to help you. I can't believe they said that to me. I'm getting there, you know, little by little. False humility. But there's also something called false pride, or I call it convoluted pride. My life is so much worse, there's the competition, so much worse than everyone else's. I have every right to abuse alcohol or drugs or other people or whatever. I am proud of my terrible situation. I'm winning at losing. Pride leads to every other vice. This is my excuse because I'm winning the competition of the most terrible life that anybody ever had. Convoluted form of pride. And while all of us have some of that to some time to time, whenever we're doing something that's not good for us to do. So remember first, I mean, 2 Timothy 1.7 is telling us that we already have. God hasn't given us a spirit of Fear, when I stop, that's when you finish. But of power and love and the Samite, we already have that in the Lord. So I want to talk with us about how to return to confidence through humility. Step one is about forgiveness. Asking God to forgive us of those sins of which we aren't quite, haven't been able to, to let go of. But also to forgive others who have taught you wrong. A classic one, by the way, particularly now, and this is a big issue, what would they call the millennials? Some kids are getting praised way too much. <laughs> way too much, right? Hey, you took a step. Yay, you brushed your teeth. Wow, awesome, big celebration. Confetti comes down every time the kid blinks their eyes properly or something. And that creates, that's, that's creating a bad thing for those kids, right? They can do no wrong. It's wreaking havoc in corporations, by the way. <laughs> Bosses are not allowed to tell millennials that they've done anything wrong now. It's a big issue that I'm dealing with, which I'm actually glad for because it generates revenue for me. (laughs) 
but also to forgive those who have hurt you. Okay? And then this forgiveness is all about the past. So step two is then now forget about the past and move on to the future. Set your mind. Setting your mind means thinking these things. It's all over the scriptures. On what lies ahead in the future of what you actually want, which in this case is true humility. I'm assuming you would like that because it's a pathway into confidence. And then apply God's word to your heart by saying out loud. Sing this out loud. This is really important. Is if you start to claim God's word out loud, it has a bigger impact for a lot of different reasons. Partly is if you say it out loud, you probably really mean it. <laughs> and you are listening and God is listening. And his universe is listening to you. And so we can say out loud God's word. Now before I show you this, I just want to make a quick comment to you. And what I do to help people and coach people and counsel with people, although I'm not really big on counseling, I've learned and the Lord has showed me a lot of different kind of clever and kind of powerful psychological tricks. What he's also shown me over, over the past probably two years is that although those are effective, his word is actually even more effective than those things, which I'm glad to see. I just didn't know how to get there. And now I'm learning how to get there. And part of it is saying these things out loud. Okay, So scriptures like applying this into your life are saying things like, I am crucified with Christ. I'm no longer alive, but Christ is living in me. In this life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for, for me. We say this out loud. I can do all things only through Christ. There's nothing I can't do through Christ. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Remember in John 15, he talked about himself as the vine, and we were the branches. And if we're cut off from him, no more power, no more source. I choose to humble myself before the Lord, James 4.10. I am clothed with compassion, kindness, and humility already in Christ. Like my teacher, I am gentle and humble in heart. Or in Micah, I choose to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. So just the words we see up there as a congregation, let's all say this out loud together. Just the word. We don't have to see the references. So with me, I am crucified with Christ. I can do all things only through Christ. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. I choose to humble myself before the Lord. I am clothed with compassion, kindness, and humility. Like my teacher, I am gentle and humble in heart. I choose to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. I've printed out this page. Uh, if you want copies of that, they're sitting out there on the table. So let's just close uh, with a word of prayer and the worship team will come up for one more song as I pray, okay? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful, more than thankful for your word. We are blessed by it beyond our comprehension. We know it has power for us, and so we claim it into our lives. We seek to be walking confidently in you because in our confidence of walking in you, it's a way of glorifying you and praising you because it's all you. It always has been you. It always will be you. You are the beginning. You are the end. 
impress upon their minds and our hearts, deep within our soul, of who we truly are in you and what we already have because of you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen and amen.